You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. So welcome back to The Small Print. I'm Bronwyn Williams, and tonight I have with me David Gankul, who I've been friends with on Twitter for quite some time. So David, would you like to introduce yourself the way you like to be introduced these days? <laughs> yeah, I'll try to. Um, so my name is David Gankul. I am professor of media studies at Northern Illinois University. And if you're trying to figure out where that is on the map, um, it's just outside Chicago where I've been now for over 20 years. I specialize mainly in philosophy of technology and uh, emerging ethics. Uh, that is ethics related to things like uh, AI, robots, artificial intelligence, uh, algorithms, you name it. Um, and uh, probably the most interesting thing about my background is when I was a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut and I got really close, but uh, this was the plan B. Well, you could still get another turn now, right? Because it's getting commercial again. We're having a second space age. So that's quite exciting. That's but correct. as you said, <laughs> we invited you here to talk about some, some small, big questions, because the purpose of this show is to try and fill citizen voters and consumers, that's everyday people, in on the small print, that is the, the detail of the emerging issues that are going to turn into policy issues they're going to have to first vote on and then have to live with the results thereof. And I know that your work, you have spent quite a lot of time looking at the robot rights question. In fact, if you if you Google your name, you'll definitely see you holding up the, the placards with the, with the rights for robots and all the rest of it, which is quite a big idea, but that's that's the point, right? It's to get people to start to, to question these ideas. So we can start right there with the, with the very first question, which starts quite small and rolls up quite fast in that, what do you mean by firstly robots and secondly rights in that context? Because you are quite well known for that, that whole story. Right, so I'll answer those questions in a second, but just a, a little preface. I think this idea you have going here about bringing this down to earth where people are able to engage these questions, I think is crucial because a lot of these questions are political questions. Who yes. is going to make these decisions for us? And I think up until this point, we've been pretty content to allow the experts to make the decisions. But we're now seeing ways in which robots, algorithms, AI have an effect on our lives in a way that I think we've got to recognize is important for us to be participating in the debate and contributing to the decisions that are made. So I think this is brilliant. I, I really like this approach. And I, I think it's a really important uh, initiative that you've taken up. So. To your question, though, with regards to robots and rights, both these words, we think, have really firm definitions. And if you ask people to define them, they can probably give you a definition of robot and rights. The difficulty is, is that both of these are really slippery, slippery signifiers. They're really quite open to a range of different characterizations. So let's just start with robot. The word robot comes out of Carl Chapik's uh, stage play from 1920 called Rosum's Universal Robots. He adopted the word from the Czech language using a word that was used for laborer or servant and used it to talk about an automation uh, device that would look sort of humanoid, but not be a human, right? And obviously science fiction explodes from that point forward with robots everywhere. Uh, but also social reality is full of robots. Uh, we have them in our manufacturing plants, we have them in service roles, we have them in social roles. And probably the most useful definition of a robot comes from George Becky, a roboticist, who says that robots are devices that can uh, sense, think, and act. 
So there are devices that have sensors that can interact with the outside world and take in data. They have the ability to process that information and then act on it in a physical mode, um, whether that just be a vocal command that comes out of something like an Alexa, or whether that be something more physical with movement or body language in the robot, et cetera. Uh, but roboticists can test this definition and, and say it's not precise enough and they get worried that it's too uh, broad, et cetera. If you get a room full of roboticists together, you will have a room full of different definitions of robot, but they'll all be kind of variations of that sense, act, think paradigm that we are working with. Rights, I think, is even more complicated because uh, it's something that we value greatly, and therefore it's a loaded term. Uh, as soon as you start talking about rights, people think you must mean human rights. But rights itself is a very precise legal and moral uh, category that is utilized by people working in law and ethics. And um, the problem with rights is that even people who are experienced in law and ethics oftentimes use the word inconsistently from one sentence to another. And in a, the same year, 1920, an American jurist uh, named Wesley Holfield recognized that the word rights is a little too ambiguous to really utilize well in conversations about uh, social standing, about responsibility, about involvement with others, et cetera. So he decomposes rights into what he calls the four incidents. That's claims, powers, privileges, and immunities. And he says any right can be sort of broken down and redescribed in terms of those four molecular incidents is what he calls them. What that means is that when lawyers talk about rights, they're talking about things in very precise ways. They're not talking about it in a very ambiguous sort of umbrella term, but they're really saying, you know, what claim is being made in an intellectual property dispute? What claim is being made in the uh, request for a court to grant a writ of habeas corpus? Etc. So um, the more precise we can be with our language, obviously, the better we're able to talk about these things. But unfortunately, um, for a lot of lay people, uh, this stuff is, you know, hidden behind a veil of uh, technicalities and professionalism. Well, exactly. I mean, that's how vast industries get paid, right? By creating Correct. complexity. We all know the margin is in the mess or in the, in the ambiguity. So that makes absolute sense. But that's why we want to have this conversation to so kind of unpack those things. So the sort of first things that you have, and I mean, I do quite a lot of speaking for corporate events and for public media events. And when you mention the term robot rights, people either sort of roll their eyes a little bit or they get very, very angry. And it's, it's precisely because people don't necessarily understand what's really going on here and the conversation we're really having is as you're saying what are the what are the claims that we are bestowing upon these things that we have created that are now actually creating the world in our image and in their image going forward because this is like a reciprocal thing that we have created and we start dabbling with things like machines making decisions on our behalf but it's also the question of responsibilities that goes with that and you touched on that a little bit because any sort of claim tends to have particularly in the law there's there's sort of two sides to it just like in accounting you've kind of got a double ledger right you've got a debit and a credit and any sort of right comes with a corresponding responsibility either for society to fulfill that right or for society to prevent you from doing something that could 
impinge on someone else's rights. I mean, this is most of the rights we kind of understand in layman's terms are things like the right not to be touched against our will, the right not to have our stuff stolen, or perhaps the right to some sort of social entitlements, like a welfare safety net, for example. So when we talk about sort of rights for robots, we're also talking about that other side, not just what they get, but also what is expected from them or what responsibilities we are trying to sort of push away from certain humans at some point and towards certain machines. And I find this quite an interesting question because a lot of this sort of the sort of big claims being made and the big headlines and all the nice noise and all the, the great sort of sound bites are hiding a lot of obfuscation of responsibility to a large degree when we start talking about these things. It's not simply a case of giving robots or like Sophia the robot, everyone's favorite robot that we love to hate, <laughs> you know, the, the right to citizenship in Saudi Arabia. What The first things we're talking about from a legal perspective are really who gets sued when one of Elon Musk's Teslas run over someone, right? These are the first sort of test cases that are going to go to court. And I think there's interesting parallels when you start talking about robot rights, but also start talking about the other emerging classes of rights that are being granted to non-human entities. Things like lakes and mountains, where once again, it's really a question of liability. In other words, who is responsible for looking after these things, but who is responsible for any damage that is incurred to someone, particularly some humans, rights further down the line. Would you agree with what I've said or am I, am I, talking, am I talking nonsense? You are the expert in this field, of course. No, no, this is, this is exactly spot on. This is, this is you know, Hofeld already pointed out when he did his uh, work on rights that a right has a corresponding duty that needs to be exercised by someone else or a group of someone else's. And you're exactly right. If, if, as soon as you start to talk about these matters, it not only is granting one entity a certain status that should be recognized, but you're also saying to another group of individuals that you now have to observe that status or have to respond accordingly to that status. So I think you're exactly right. And you'll see how rights are utilized in very different ways in different contexts. So for example, when you talk about rights with regards to uh, what is now a legal person, a corporation, that mainly has to do with liability, right? Who's liable for when a product created by the corporation goes wrong and causes some damage to another person. But it's different when you talk about the rights that are being mobilized or the rights discourse that is being mobilized by say indigenous tribes that are looking to protect a river or a lake from exploitation. They are not looking to assign liability they're looking to figure out ways of protecting that particular uh, feature of the environment from exploitation by utilizing many of the legal strategies that had been developed for corporate liability. So it's a kind of reworking of the rights paradigm to be able to do something else. It's a very clever sort of um, maneuver that's going on. But you can see how already in the way that rights are being mobilized across the world right now, it's very different in different places and for different purposes. And so it's very complicated to talk about it as one kind of thing, but it's this plurality of, of the uh, you know, sort of approaches that are going on and, and uh, strategies that are being deployed. So what would you say are some of the things that, that lay people or people that don't work on this for their day-to-day -day jobs get wrong when it comes to the concept of rights in general and robot rights in particular? 
So the first thing I will say, and I say this again and again, and it's very important, when we say robot rights, we do not mean human rights, right? We can talk about the rights for an entity without meaning that we're talking about the full set of rights that we assign to human beings through the Universal Declaration of Human Rights or other kinds of documents. Uh, this is something that I think science fiction invites us to do, this kind of slippery slope. As soon as we say rights, we must mean human rights. So if you say robot rights, what do you mean? You wanna give the robots the vote? You wanna give them the right not to be turned off? I mean, that's going, I think, way too far. So I think we have to parse it more carefully and recognize that a robot is gonna have a set of rights that will be very different if it has rights at all from the rights that we assign to human beings. The same way that animals will have rights, but they will be rights for that animal. They won't have the right to vote, right? They won't be the same human rights. So that's the first thing I would say is that we have to be careful about how we uh, recognize this uh, category of rights and this set of rights that are, we are being talked about. The second thing I would point out is that we're not going to wake up one morning and declare all robots are liberated and they're gonna take over the world. Again, this works in science fiction. It's really cool, makes for great drama. And that has been operationalized in a lot of our great fiction, uh, both on the screen and on the page. Uh, but again, it's science fiction. It makes for good drama. It's not science reality. In reality, rights are something that is much more localizable and localized, that we will be making decisions on a local level that will apply to something very specific in a very specific jurisdiction. We already see this happening in the animal rights movement. We can ask for a particular elephant living in a particular place to be granted a writ of habeas corpus by a particular court. That doesn't give all elephants that right. It gives that one elephant before that one court a writ of habeas corpus, right? And I think that's how this stuff is gonna roll out. I think it's not gonna be this kind of universal declaration kind of uh, pattern. It's gonna be a much more piecemeal um, regional kind of decision-making where um, you know, different courts in different places are going to decide these things in very different ways. And that means, on the one hand, there's power in the local areas, which is great. It means that we as people can exercise some involvement and some participation in that process. But it also means that globally speaking, it's going to look very different as you move from location to location. And uh, it's not going to be one size fits all. It's going to be, you know, rather uneasy and kind of different. It took a long time for the corporation to be recognized as a legal person on a kind of global scale that we recognize today. It'll be the same with regards to these automated systems. So those are the two most important things I would point out. The third thing I would point out is that, you know, this is something that isn't going to happen immediately. This is gonna take time. And it's gonna be, um, you know, a very slow evolution of this. But I think thinking about it now prepares us for recognizing what happens and the way it evolves in the future. Okay, so perhaps we can talk about why rights for robots are important. And I suppose for sort of wearing my layman's hats, we can kind of simplify it into two, two different brackets or two different types of reasonings why we would want to have these things. The one is to protect us and the other is to protect the entity that is getting rights bestowed on it. And that's why it's kind of nice to contrast the sorts of rights that you're speaking about that have been granted to corporations, which are really to protect us as human beings, 
in contrast with the sort of rights that are being granted towards certain animals and certain natural endowments like lakes and mountains, like you were speaking about, which is really to protect the entity that is getting the right. When it gets to robots, it becomes a bit more complicated because at the moment where we are right now, no one is completely convinced that robots have become conscious and they are demanding rights for their own sake. So initially, we're probably going to be bestowing rights to protect ourselves as, as human beings. So it's actually in our own interests, almost an additional right for humans to, to put some rights slash responsibilities onto robots, or at least the creators of robots. But further down the line, we get to the more complicated question, whereas is a sort of a conscious artificial intelligence, is it something that deserves a right in and of itself and for itself. And that's when we do sort of tend to towards the more sort of science fiction realm. But I think it's an interesting question to get into from your perspective in terms of those reasonings for the rights, why this is important today immediately and further down the line as technology really does sort of almost seem to be getting away from us a little bit. Yeah, correct. So I would say that the reason to have these conversations now is precisely as you've pointed out. It is about our social fabric. It is about the way that we work as social animals with each other, but also with other kinds of things that are not like us, but will have social presence, that will have social impact, that will occupy spaces in our world that aren't just like we recognize for another kind of tool, like a hammer or a screwdriver. And that's why I think even before we get to things like consciousness or sentience or you know, humanoid uh, form or whatever the case is, these questions need to be addressed. So let me give you a really good example. Recently, there was a problem in Philadelphia where they couldn't figure out how to integrate delivery robots into the flow of traffic with pedestrians and automobiles. Now, this is a very low level, but important kind of thing because you can imagine if Amazon wants to roll out self-driving delivery vehicles that are about the size of a child's bicycle or, or a scooter or something that drives up and down your street or up and down your sidewalk to bring you packages, that's a great convenience. But what is that entity's right on the traffic flow? How does it interact with pedestrians? Who has the right of way when it's crossing the street uh, in front of a car? So inevitably we have to make some decisions about who has what status in this relationship of traffic. Um, but it's not just gonna be traffic, it's gonna be all kinds of other things where we'll have to decide the status of these artifacts in relationship to the human society in which they are embedded. We already see um, reasons for this uh, with regards to battlefield robots. The militaries across the world are using robots in the battlefield um, to work alongside human uh, soldiers. And we've discovered in the United States that the human soldiers that get these robots give them names. They protect them from harm. Uh, there's even reports where soldiers have risked their own lives to save the life of the robot. And that's because they don't look at the robot as a tool. It's not just like their rifle. It's like another team member. And so what are the ways in which we can make sense of these new social pressures where objects that used to be just objects now become social subjects? And how do we figure out a way of integrating them into our relationships so that we are not just doing the right thing with regards to them, which probably is not that important right now, as you said, but we're doing the right things with regards to us. 
what decisions are we making about our future world and our future social environment in a way that respects our needs, our desires, and you know what happens with us as a uh, culture moving forward. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because there's also the argument to be made, I know, in the, in the ethics community around, say, and going back to animal rights again, that one of the very good reasons to have animal rights is to make us better behaved towards each other. That, you know, if you allow cruelty towards subordinate species, I mean, I'm a bit hesitant to say even that because there's so little we know about, about what goes on in the inner workings of the, the minds of our fellow creatures here, it's, it doesn't reflect well on our future ability to, you know, behave well to, to to our peers and to our partners. I mean, we all know that sort of serial killers do tend to treat animals a bit worse than the rest of us, for example, for quite an extreme example. But there is that whole argument to be made that we should treat things that appear to be humanoid in some way well, otherwise we sort of allow or normalize bad behavior towards any other creature. So do you have a comment on that? Because that's a bit more of a complicated thought, but I think it's, it's definitely a right. valuable point to make to people that haven't been exposed to these conversations. Yeah, so I'll say three things that come from the realm of research, right? Or the actual work people have done on this. The oldest comes from Immanuel Kant, uh, a German philosopher from you know, way back when, right? Um, Kant was not an animal rights advocate. Um, he, he thought only human beings had rights. But he did have this idea of what he called indirect duties, that we should treat animals well, because if you kick your dog, you're more likely to kick your child, right? And so he had this sort of indirect approach to arguing for animal rights. But this has been mobilized by people like Kate Darling, who have argued that robots also serve that role in our world, that people who behave poorly with seemingly alive artifacts will also or could also transfer those uh, behaviors to real animals or other human beings. The second thing is, is that in the 1990s, uh, a bunch of researchers, uh, Clifford Noss and Byron Reeves in, um, San, in, in the California region, um, did this experiment they called the computer as social actor experiments. And they discovered that human beings treat things that have social presence as if they're another person. And if you ask them, why are you doing this? Their answer is, well, I know it's just a thing, but somehow it's social status requires me to do more than just be cruel. And they found that people treat any kind of object that has a kind of social presence through movement, through uh, speech, through interaction uh, as being a kind of another social entity. And they call this the media equation that we equate media with human beings. And that is a, another version of this kind of approach to describing what you were talking about. Finally, we have right now in the social sciences an entire field called robot abuse studies, which sounds as terrible as it is. What they do is they bring human subjects into the lab and they ask them to torture and kill and maim robots and to see how human beings respond to these things. They've also done situations where they have human beings watch videos of animal abuse and videos of robot abuse. And then they use an MRI machine to see if there's any difference in the responsiveness in their, in their brain. And it turns out that there's no difference in the responsiveness in the brain. We perceive animal abuse the same way that we perceive robot abuse. So they're, they're on par with each other. And many human test subjects are reticent to engage in this kind of violent behavior towards a robot, even when the 
sort of experimenter tells them, well, it's just a robot. You don't have to worry. It has no feelings. You can just bash it with a hammer. Um, nevertheless, people are reticent to do so. And it, I think it speaks to our social nature. If something has social presence and it interacts in a social-like way, even if it's very low level, like your pet dog or your pet bunny rabbit, we tend to treat it with a certain modicum of respect. And robots obviously are going to play with that um, in ways that we don't have the vocabulary even to talk about yet. And I think that's what we're trying to prepare for. How do we deal with the challenges that the artifact brings to this experience? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have interacted with some of those robotic pets at various different expos across the world, and they and they do almost require you to pet them when they look at you with their big eyes, and they're like they want interaction. It's very hard to separate in your own mind that this is this is just a toy. It's there to entertain me. I'm not actually there to entertain it. But it does show that we do create. It, it, they are sort of emotional triggers that we don't fully understand about ourselves that are tapped into here. But I wanted to mention a case study that I read, and I can't remember the country that it happened in but I know it was somewhere in Asia and they put up a security camera in a mall and they put basically a humanoid robot into that mall space and it was acting kind of like a security guard. So it was telling people what to do or not to go to certain places. So it was giving instructions to humans, very low level instructions. And what they found was that the adult shoppers deferred to the machine and they they if the machine said move out the way the, the adult shoppers moved out the way but with children when children were not with an adult presence so when it was just a group of kids in the mall they abused the robot they kicked it swore at it and insulted it and refused to listen to what it said and i thought that was really really interesting because intuitively i would have thought to be the other way around that adults that haven't grown up with as much technology as small children have, because children today are overexposed to all different types of technology, would have perhaps shown more resistance to taking instructions from an artificial person. I don't know if you have a thought on that or if you've heard or seen of similar studies, but I read it quite recently and it, it's, it resonated from, with me because it surprised me. Right. So th this study, you're, you're right, it was done in, in Japan in a shopping mall. And uh, since that time, there's been attempts to reproduce it and the results are pretty consistent with the initial uh, demonstration. And I think this is on the one hand surprising because as you're right, we, you know, as you pointed out, we would think that the adults would be the ones who would be more prone to this kind of behavior. But it does tell us that this kind of approach to dealing with other entities is socialized in us. I mean, you think about the way children um, interact with animals. There are things that my kid has done to my dog that you know was shocking because you know he didn't know the limits um, in terms of how to relate to the animal, and so there's a way in which we socialize our children in these kinds of um, encounters with other kinds of otherness, right? Um, and so it's I, I think from that perspective not surprising that the children would sort of push the envelope and see you know what what is happening because for them this is very similar to encountering an animal for the first time and not you know, really knowing what the limits of you know, their engagement could be. Uh, so I, I don't think this is somehow um, just an innate thing. I think it's a culturally uh, specific thing that you know, we socialize into as we age and, and develop and, and become educated in uh, social interaction. That's a really good point. But I suppose the other sort of way we could look at this is that in the shorter term, again, sort of coming back to the first sort of level of robot rights we're going to have to deal with, is the whole case that there's also the, the case to be made about 
protecting the rights of robots in order to protect the property or that is the person that, that owns that entity. Because although in that case study I spoke about it was the children, there are of course those other studies of like the hitchhiker robot, the poor guy that got sort of murdered by like some, some cruel American somewhere on some lonely road, you know. And those sort of things do stick in one's mind, particularly as the, the meta conversation going on around the role of technology in our lives, particularly in our lives with relation to jobs and work. There are so many conversations being had right now about technological redundancy. And there is a there is a risk, in fact, a legitimate risk and also a legitimate complaint of many workers that will be displaced by, or at least frustrated by, like some of the Amazon workers who have had to deal with unpleasant human temperatures in order to preference their robotic colleagues that are literally being trained to sort of take over their jobs in the future. There is a certain resistance to the presence of robots, and particularly humanoid-looking ones, in our workplaces and in society by the group of, of people in society that feel threatened by these entities in terms of their own socioeconomic standing in society. So there is a, an opportunity or a, or a threat, uh, I think that's probably a better way to put it, of a sort of a new Luddite move, movement taking place, that we're going to have to bestow some sort of protection rights on our robotic cobots and, and bosses or whatever they might be in order to literally protect their survival. Do you have a view on that, on, on the, the legitimacy of that threat and what can be done from a legal and from an ethical framework to try and ease that human robot transition on the economics plane? Yeah, no, this is, this is important because with every new wave of automation, beginning with the automated loom back in the 19th century, there is a pushback from the workers who are inevitably displaced by the new technologies. And so our word Luddite comes from a supposed leader of one of these revolutions, Ned Ludd, right, who led a workers' revolution against the um, automated weaving uh, loom in the 19th century during industrialization. But we see this happening in successive waves after each new technological innovation. Obviously we are on the cusp of a massive influx of automation into our workplaces. The COVID pandemic hasn't helped this because as human beings were removed from physical presence in various places in the workforce, robots inevitably were one of the places people went to find solutions for um, getting the work done. And you can see now with the push for uh, automated driving technologies, not for the family car, but for long haul trucking, displacing a whole range of uh, transportation workers um, and making those uh, occupations um, in, in danger or even um, you know, automated out of existence. Um, so it's very reasonable to understand why people would want to push back because of the fact that their jobs are threatened, their livelihood is threatened, not just their livelihood, but that of their family, their children. I mean, it has huge economic impact. So what does that mean? On the one hand, you don't just wanna say, well, don't, don't automate. There's a, you know, there's a reason the automation occurs and some jobs are more easily automated than others. And this is part of the ongoing struggle between uh, labor and technology that we've seen historically played out. On the other hand, you don't want to, um, you know, fully embrace this and say, well, you know, it's just anything goes. Whatever robots you want to bring in, bring in. And if it displaces workers, don't worry about it. You know, bottom line is the most important thing. 
I think this is where the role for government really comes into play because government can mediate between those two factions, between the workers who need to maintain some control over their employability and their future, and between corporate owners who want to look for ways of automating and making things cheaper, better, stronger, faster, whatever the case is. If we only allow the market to decide this without any kind of outside uh, oversight or regulation, I think that's when you run into troubles. That's when you see real conflict. And I think the really important thing for world governments to begin to think about is how do we ease this transition from one in, you know, in industrial era to this post-industrial era or this robotic era. And I don't have the recipe for that. If I did, I'd get paid a lot more and have a way more important job somewhere at the UN or somewhere else. But I do know that this is a, negoci a negotiation that's gonna have to take place again in very regional ways. It's gonna have to happen at the city level. It's gonna have to happen at the state or province level. It's not just a national item, but it is something that is gonna have to be um, built on a framework of a national strategy and informed by international cooperation, recognizing that this is a global problem. It's not a regional problem. Yeah, absolutely. So, so let's talk about, again, everyone's favorite robot that we love to hate, especially if you do work in the sort of futures and tech space, old Sophia the robot and these other sort of showbots that you want to put out there. These, these ones that have taken up a lot of headline space and have, have really sort of directed the conversation around humanoid robots on the one hand and robot rights on another. There are a lot of sort of very big sort of publicity kind of stunt things that have taken place with big organizations and wealthy nation states. What are your thoughts on the value of those sort of publicity st uh, stunts and the, the potential problems that they are actually creating for politicians, for policymakers, and for people in your space that have to have to deal with the sort of fallouts of these stunts? Are they on balance good for the cause of making us get towards a more positive post sort of robot transition or are they working against us? Right. And so the way I explain this to students is I say these little stunts, these little publicity items that you see are kind of like science fiction, right? They're a version of science. They're like a performance art, right? They're, they're, they're a kind of science fiction in social reality. And roboticists in particular have a love-hate relationship with science fiction. And that's what we see playing out, I think, with these showbots. On the one hand, as you pointed out, these things help prepare an audience to be receptive to some of these questions. They're able to actually see a robot in physical space um, as opposed to being on the screen, which is where most people see a robot. Um, I know for myself, when my university got a hold of some robots, being able to bring the robot into the classroom was an eye-opening experience for my students because up until that point, they had no real world experience with this kind of artifact. So I think you know, it helps do some of that work for us, giving us examples we can point to, giving us things we can say, you know, this is what this is going to look like or how it's going to function. On the other hand, it creates a set of expectations that oftentimes can't be met and that oftentimes aren't realistic. And so even though it opens doors, it can also create potential reasons to be concerned because it builds expectations among your lay audience for what is gonna happen or not happen uh, that can never really be fulfilled. And I think 
science fiction plays this role. I think the showbots also play this role. And that means if we're gonna be really serious about this, we have to sort of think about what are the responsibilities of the people who do this performance, right? We don't often talk about it in terms of res the responsibility on the performer, but I think there is a responsibility on the organizations and individuals who create these things and, and run these events. And um, you know, what do we make of that responsibility and, and how is the accountability answered for when we you do run into situations where there are unmet expectations? So it's a kind of, for me, it's also a love-hate relationship. You know, I, I like to use some of these you know, videos with my students to open up avenues of inquiry but then I always have to back it off and say, now, wait a minute, let's be very careful about what we see here, what's happening, what it's all about. And it's going to take some literacy, I think, Just the same way in which, you know, people who first heard Orson Welles's War of the Worlds uh, thought we were being invaded by Mars. Um, you know, that actually created a problem that needed to be sort of backed off and sort of reckoned with, um, with regards to that performance. And I think we're seeing very similar things with robots now. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, we've spoken a bit about humanoid robots, which is obviously where people's imagination tends to go, because that's where science fiction has taken us. That's where all these showbots have taken us. And that's, of course, what gets the headlines, gets the attention and looks really good on a stage. I mean, if you want to pad up your, your keynote. But I think it's also worth asking you, and I'm not sure how far your work actually goes with it. But when it comes to robots, when you personally are speaking about robots in your work, are you talking about humanoid robots and about mechanical robots exclusively? Or does your work also look at more algorithmic type robots? Because as you said, everyone defines this slightly differently. And a lot of people would define a robot as also being an algorithm that's got an input, does some work and spits out an output. And in fact, some of the earliest case studies on in terms of actual sort of robots getting rights would be like that chatbot also in Japan again that got given sort of residency in his, in his city. I think what was his name? Shibiru or something like that. Right. So anyway, it was one of the very first sort of robot rights that was actually bestowed upon a non-human entity with the full support of the human community, incidentally. But of course, that's also, again, quite high up the visual layer. But when it comes to rights and responsibilities that you're really talking about, the potential harm or damage or impact that robots can have in our everyday lives, the most important layers for most of most lay people, most people who be listening to this, are the sort of invisible robots, the algorithms that run our world around us. And, and that's perhaps probably, it's, it's almost definitely going to be the first layer where real legal test cases are played out in terms of rights and responsibilities of both human beings and the companies that deploy these things and the nation states that deploy them against their, their citizens. So yeah, that, those are the sort of two parts of my question there. The first one being, does your work extend to the invisible robots layer or do you play with the, with the real ones? you know, the, the fun toys. And, and secondly, what are some of those, those sort of early signposts and signals that you're seeing in terms of rights and responsibilities for invisible robots, if that is something you look at? Correct. Okay, good. So um, yeah, exactly right. My, my work does deal with the invisible robots and for a very good reason. Um, because I teach in a, a department of communication, we are very concerned about robots and devices, algorithms, chatbots that are able to engage in communicative interaction with human beings. In fact, the first formulation of machine intelligence back in Ellen Turing's 1950 paper is about emulating human conversational 
interaction. So I take communication as being a really crucial element in the entire trajectory of AI and robots as we move from Turing forward. And therefore my robots, at least the ones I deal with, are both the visible ones, the physical ones, and the invisible virtual ones um, that we encounter in various uh, formats uh, in our everyday life. Uh, and if I have used the term robot rights, it's just because the alliteration works better than AI and robot rights, which sounds a little cumbersome. So Much better. I, I yeah, totally it's, accept. <laughs> it's, so it's, it's a literary uh, sort of creative license there that I've, that I've utilized, but uh, it does look at both. Now, with regards to the invisible robots, you're exactly right. Um, I tell my students that, you know, right now you are living in the robot invasion that was predicted by science fiction. It just doesn't look like it did on the screen. It isn't a robot uprising. It's, they're not coming from outer space with spaceships and ray guns and invading the earth, right? It is like the fall of Rome. Like Rome fell not because the barbarians picked up sticks and you know, swords and ran into the city of Rome. It's because the Romans invited them in. And slowly but surely over time, the barbarians were occupying all the important positions in the Roman government and running things. That's exactly what we're doing. We're inviting the algorithms into every aspect of our world, letting them make decisions on our behalf because we like it. They give us good movie recommendations. They make really good recommendations about what book to read. They help us get a mortgage and everything else. It's wonderful. Um, but one day we will wake up and we will say, like the Romans did, where did all the robots come from? And you know that, that incursion is happening now. And you know students often don't see this. Lay people often don't see this because it's sort of in, imperceptible, it's invisible. And as more and more robots take over the decision-making and human interface roles uh, that human beings played in the past, there's gonna be greater algorithmic involvement in creating our social environment. The algorithms are gonna create the world we live in. And that's a big problem if we're not grappling with what that means for us who has the power to implement these things and make decisions about how they are employed, where they are employed, and for whose benefit they are working. So places we see this happening um, already are you know, in, in a lot of the news. Um, one place you see it occurring is with algorithmic decision-making with regards to employment. Several years ago, Amazon was looking to hire a bunch of software engineers and they trained their algorithm that was sorting the applications on uh, historic data on job applications. But turns out that the historic data was biased against female applicants because historically there were more male applicants in the field than there were females, right? And as a result, the algorithm was biased against female applicants. And we didn't know this until someone did a review much later as to why are we hiring only guys, where are the women who applied for this job? And it turned out the, the algorithm had, had sorted through the applications and had made a decision to push one group of the demographic out of the mix and highlight another group in the demographic. So, you know, that obviously is a very bad outcome. And Amazon, to their credit, pulled the algorithm as soon as they discovered the problem. But, you know, some of the damage was already done. People had been hired other people had been uh, you know, not given opportunity. And this is the kind of thing I think you know, is only gonna become more 
prevalent as we integrate these algorithms into our everyday lives. Another place we see it happening is in the assignment of intellectual property. Um, there was recently a case in the UK where a corporation had asked for an AI to be recognized as an inventor, as you know, a, a team member on the, on, the, on the group that created a certain new uh, invention. And the court decided, no, the AI couldn't be an inventor. Only human beings could be inventors. But you can bet that's not the first or the last time this question is going to be asked. And it will be raised again and again with both patents and with copyright, with regards to who can own intellectual property um, in terms of uh, songs, in terms of literature, um, other kinds of artworks. Exactly. Um, I suppose the next question I have for you is where you think we don't have enough rights, regulations or rules in place. I mean, you've mentioned some things there in terms of recruitment and some of the other examples that you went through there. But I suppose the thing that bothers me probably the most, probably just because of my own particular biases, is, is what's happening in terms of governance by robot rules. And as you have pointed out, it's one thing setting up some sort of robots or automation to automate a perfect system. But if you automate an imperfect system, you just get much faster mess, right? So you just accelerate so accelerate the problems. And I suppose it is something that I think citizens should definitely be aware of, things like the predictive policing models that are coming out right now. And even the way many courts, I know in, in some places in the United States already, are using some sort of robots or algorithms to actually dish out sentences to people that have been sent or are facing trial based on some sort of algorithm or some sort of robotic system. So from my perspective, I would probably like to see some sort of rights for, for us humans against the abuse of robots by the people who we sort of paid to govern us. But what are, what are some of the other areas that you are particularly concerned about? Because you're obviously closer to the, the, this particular coalface than I am. Where are the places that policymakers need to be drawing attention to? And likewise, where are the places that citizens need to be agitating their representatives to actually get some rights and rules in place to protect us, our businesses, and the robots themselves? Can I say everywhere? Yeah, that's, that's a great answer. <laughs> but you got to start somewhere. you got to eat the elephant no. one bite at a time. <laughs> yeah, but, but I, I think because of the proliferation of these things and the, you know, just efficiencies that they bring to all different domains of human endeavor, um, we see this happening in all kinds of places. You mentioned in sentencing by courts. You mentioned in... Um, you know, sorting job applications. I mean, these are the ones that have got attention in the press. There's loads that haven't got attention in the, in the press. And, you know, I think one of the things we need to become very attentive to is how the algorithms are being used in our world on our behalf when they can't be seen, right? So this is the problem. How do you make visible the algorithmic process when it's hidden from view. And it's hidden from view for two reasons. One is it often is in the cloud. So it's invisible to begin with. The second reason it's hidden from view is that because these are proprietary pieces of software, you can't just pop the hood and look inside to see what it's doing. It's hidden by patent law. It's hidden by copyright protections. And therefore, as individual citizens, even if we understood enough about the algorithm to want to understand why it does what it does or doesn't do what it's doing, whatever the case is, we're not given the access 
to that kind of information. This is what people often call you know, uh, algorithmic transparency. <laughs> but algorithmic transparency sometimes is about the corporation that built or is using the algorithm uh, giving what they call full disclosure. But that oftentimes is never full enough. And I think part of what we're running up against is some protections in the industry that stop those of us who want to learn more about what the algorithms are doing or not, not doing from actually being able to inspect what's going on and, and you know, what it means for us. So there is a lot of work to be done in developing literacy in you know, the human population. I think it would make sense to begin teaching kids about this in grade school. I think we wait until secondary or post-secondary education to even touch these matters. I would say, you know, my students um, didn't get involved in talking about AI and algorithms until just a couple of years ago, because we thought it was a specialized realm for the computer scientists or the engineers to get involved in. I think the social scientists, the students who go into psychology, sociology, uh, you know, anthropology, they all need to know these things too, because it's going to affect their work world. It's going to affect their environment. It's going to affect, you know, where they live, how they work, how their family survives, etc. So I think the, the biggest onus is on, on people like me, educators. I think we've got to bring this down to earth and make it part of the curriculum across the board so that we are now developing a citizenry that is able to recognize where the algorithms are, what they're doing, and what that means for us. Oh, absolutely. I like to say a lot when it comes to technological problems and, and how, to, how to deal with them. These are complicated, messy problems that society's got to deal with, and it's not something that can be done by one person at a time. You've kind of got two levers. You've got education on the one side, and you've got regulation on the other. And you've spoken a bit about education, about getting more people involved. It's not just sort of social science students. It's, it's literally everyone. Everyone is going to be affected by this some way or the other, whether it's through your police service or through you know how they nudge you towards your medical aid or your national health insurance, whatever the case may be, it really is going to affect everyone's lives. So you have to educate the general populace that they're able to vote for the sorts of policies or to agitate for the right and lobby for the right sorts of things and changes to happen to protect people from themselves, essentially, or from, from these robots. But at the same time, you've got the question of regulation itself. These are the people that define the policies and actually bestow those rights across society and objects as things get more complicated into the future. But we have a very big problem there in that regulators are trying to regulate things that they don't understand. I mean, we've seen this with those hugely embarrassing, very cringe-inducing sort of Senate hearings around social media, where clearly the people that are making the laws have absolutely no idea what they're regulating. So you end up with silly laws. You end up with laws that are focused on minute detail, that like somebody's understood something or some particularly squeaky wheel has complained about a particular attribute up getting that sort of very piecemeal legislation on the one hand. On the other hand, you often get too sweeping regulation that kind of drives the world into an AI winter again, you know, essentially sort of slows down the good stuff that comes with this, because we can't forget that most of technology has actually been pretty good for humanity. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I don't have to do that my grandmother did, for example, that I'm quite, I'm quite pleased about in general. So you don't want to sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater. But that does raise the question that when 
these the, these robots and the, their inner workings are hidden both from the citizens who are affected by them and not understood by the regulators who are trying to sort of control them for, for nefarious or benevolent ends, depending on what sort of government you happen to have and what corner of the world you live in. The, the question is then, what is the best approach to going about actually defining those various rights for the various different stakeholders in this situation? Do we need to come up with some sort of like universal bill of rights or some quite broad strokes type principles that we want to govern these things by? Or which was coming back to what you were saying earlier, like which ones do we regulate first? And you say sort of all of them. Or is it a case of sort of pulling out case studies and working with the sort of legal system that we have now that's based on precedent that could actually you know, lead us in, in various, down various different garden paths to, to unknown ends. What is the best way to actually approach this? If someone is listening to this conversation and says, yeah, I'm actually a bit concerned about my sort of hiring prospects being sort of dictated to by some robot that lives in a black box that no one can unpack at the very big companies that I want to apply to. What are, what are the questions that people should be asking about their regulators or what what are the movements or manifestos that are being written behind closed doors in academia where pe people think about these things? What are the first steps? What are the principles that we can apply without you know, causing more harm? The last thing you want is a paperclip minimizer or maximizer situation developing here from, from well-intended but, but badly applied sort of you know, problem solutions to this, to this very messy thing. What are, what are the next steps? I don't know, that's probably a completely unfair question, but I think it's worth asking. <laughs> Even if we don't have the answers. No, it's, it, it is a really good question. Um, so I would say a couple of things here. One is, uh, and I tell my students this all the time, you're the ones in a democracy who are deciding the individual you are gonna send as your representative to, in our case, Washington, DC. And that means if we are going to get the regulations that we deserve and that take into account our interests with regards to how we respond to these technologies, we have to send to government the people who are best situated to speak on our behalf, who understand the technology. And you're exactly right. I mean, if you look at many legislatures across the world, you see a previous generation trying to use a previous set of laws to talk about something that the new generation understands, but they don't. And we saw it with the internet, right? A set of really horrible laws across the world to try to deal with internet pornography, to try to deal with uh, platforms like Facebook and Twitter. And inevitably there is a need to make sure that as citizens, we are making the best choices about our representatives and making sure that they are there representing our interests in the way that you know, we want them to do. If you look at the previous presidential campaign in the United States, you looked at the Democratic candidates, very few of them had anything to say about AI, right? Um, Andrew Yang had one or two things to say about it. Um, and that's about it. The, the rest of them were pretty much, pretty much silent on this subject. And obviously, that's not the best scenario as you move forward into a future where these algorithms play a much greater role in deciding our social environment and what we are able to do or not do. That's the first thing. The second thing I would say is that we oftentimes look at the plurality of, of different governments and different regulations and different strategies to regulation as being a problem. 
uh, that you know there is no one way of doing this. Everybody does it a little bit differently, and there's these global differences as you look from say China to the EU to the U.S. to South America. Um, but I would also say this plurality is really crucial because what we see being done are different experiments in terms of how best to regulate these technologies. And if we're smart, we will look at and learn from the successes and the failures of other jurisdictions when it comes to doing these kinds of regulations. Unfortunately for my government, we don't do a lot of this. And that's because of this whole American exceptionalism thing where we think we've got it right to begin with. I don't think any country has it right to begin with. I think everybody's struggling against the same challenges and different places will have different solutions. Some will pop out as being better than others. And by doing a comparison and a contrast between the different regions of the world and how they respond to these things, I think we have a much better chance of developing something that works in the broad global perspective of things. And lastly, I would say, we shouldn't forget, and we often talk about this in terms of international cooperation and initiatives and national governments and regulation, and we shouldn't forget that a lot happens from the bottom up. A lot happens at the city level with regards to the way the city decides to work with a particular technology. A good example of this is the way that various cities have either decided to work with Google or have not decided to work with Google and made laws you know, related to how tech companies work with these municipalities with regards to their various uh, services uh, with technology. I think if we are really dedicated to being involved in this, we get involved at the local level because that's where a lot of this stuff is gonna be innovated. That's where a lot of the prototypes are going to be introduced and tested before they move up into the national conversation. And there's a lot to happen in your local city governance with regards to these things, even though that might seem really boring, right? I think there's a lot of power that comes from the bottom and we have to actually make sure our cities and our city governments are responding to these things um, on our be uh, best interests. I think that's a, that's a marvelous way to bring this conversation to a close because it does sort of echo my general philosophy that if you want to see change, you kind of have to educate yourself, get involved with the conversation and, and direct the, the future towards the one that you want. Otherwise, you sort of get sucked up in someone else's vision as to where we're going or just along the sort of path of lowest resistance, which is not that fun. But you make a very good point, particularly at the, at the city level where individuals do have agency and can make a difference. I've definitely been encouraged by the few different US-based cities who have managed to ban things like facial recognition, which all kind of ties into this conversation. Obviously, facial recognition is just an input into the robots that are being used to govern those cities. But citizens that are willing to sort of stand up and sort of call their leaders to account can really make a difference on this going forward. So I think that's, that's the message for everyone listening here. Get educated, get informed, and definitely follow David. And to close that off, now if you've got anything any closing thoughts david otherwise if you can just tell people where to find you or where they where you would like them to find you if they have any more conversations or want to read more of your work sure and you know for me these conversations are always a good starter right but obviously it spills out into all kinds of other new questions new ideas and other kinds of things so um you know i'm always open to continuing the conversation um outside this venue and if people do want to learn more or have questions, uh, certainly seek me out and, uh, you know, we'll try and sort things out for you. And uh, I'd like to hear, you know, what you have to say about it too. So you can find me um, on the web at gunkleweb.com. 
which is my uh, website. Uh, you can find me at Twitter at David underline Gunkel. Um, that's the Twitter handle. And uh, then my email address, dgunkel at niu.edu um, is, you know, best way to contact me directly. And, uh, you know, for my purposes, I always learn a great deal when, you know, I interact with people from all walks of life who bring their unique perspective to these things. Um, and uh, this is, I think, valuable for us as educators because we have to really, you know, connect with people where they are at and hearing what they have to say about this is really crucial to me. Thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time and with your insights. Thanks Thank again. You. This is the small print. Bye.